Well, who do you think you are? You ever said that? Ever had somebody say that to you? Or maybe if you never said it out loud quite like that, you've thought it before, right? A lot of times we'll say that or think that when we're frustrated, when we're exasperated, when we're just ticked off at somebody who's acted in kind of a rude or arrogant fashion. Or maybe they've been operating out of out of a mentality that just screams entitlement, right? That they deserve all of this, and we just kind of like, who in the world do you think you are? Well, it's a legitimate question. Hopefully, when we ask it of ourselves, we ask it with a little different tone and tenor. But it's a question that we ask all the time. We operate out of all the time. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And it's not just some random kind of philosophical gaze at your navel kind of question, uh, but it really impacts almost every area of our lives. How we relate to other people, how we approach problems and challenges and opportunities along the way. Our sense of identity, our sense of who we are, speaks into all of those things. That's why it is an important question to wrestle with. But it's also an area where we believe an awful lot of lies. And you know, sometimes the most powerful lies are the lies we tell ourselves, aren't they? And so what I want us to do is to jump back into this letter called First Peter that Peter wrote many years ago and discover a little bit about what Peter says is true about us. Robert McGee years ago wrote a book that impacted uh, a lot of lives uh, and some material that came out of that. Uh, it was called uh, the, the Search for Significance. And in that Search for Significance, uh, McGee put forth Satan's formula for your self-esteem, right? Uh, and basically some of the lies that we believe. And he, and he boiled it down to this, that many of us, when we seek to answer that question, who do you think you are, we operate according to Satan's formula. We operate with a formula that goes something like this. Uh, my self-worth equals my performance plus others' opinion of me, right? My self-worth is tied into my performance and others' opinions of me. If that becomes the equation that we operate from, we're in for a roller coaster ride, aren't we? Well, we're, 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 we're going to struggle at times to, to understand and even, even feel God's uh, acceptance, love, and presence in our lives. Because all of us, our performance waxes and wanes. All of us have good days and not so good days. And, and even, even at times when you're at your absolute best, then you run into somebody else who's better, who's quicker, who's smarter, who's richer, who's more successful, or whatever that might be, right? And, and we begin to kind of to feel weird by comparison. Or other people's opinion, oh my goodness, right? I mean, that can shift and with, with just the wind. The people that applaud you today can be uh, posting things about you online uh, in the next moment, right? Other people's opinions come and go. 
If I'm really going to understand who I am, I have to have something a little more solid than my performance or other people's opinion. And so I, I want to just begin by sh- repeating to you again a statement that, that, that I am convinced is, is, is true to the core of my being, and it's simply this. The truest thing about you is what God says about you. The truest thing about you, the truest thing about me is what God says about us. Regardless of my performance today, regardless of other people's opinion about me today, the truest thing about me, the truest thing about you is what God says about you. And that's why Peter can be instructive to us at this point. Remember the context. He's writing to some folks that that are undergoing some incredibly tough times. And maybe they haven't always been the most faithful in the midst of it. They're experiencing persecution. They're experiencing opposition. They're experiencing all sorts of pressure because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And when you have all of those things coming at you, it begins to kind of mess with your understanding of who you are. When bad things are happening, maybe you begin to doubt some things about you or even about God along the way. And as we continue to just kind of walk through this letter, uh, we, we discover some things that are true about us, that are true about us as a part of God's family. And so I want to encourage you, if you have a paper copy, if you have an electronic copy, an app, or whatever it is, to find in your Bible uh, the New Testament book of 1 Peter. It's a letter toward the very end of the New Testament, 1 Peter, and we're going to look at uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and following. But I want to kind of do this this morning in a little bit of an inverted way. We're going to look at verses 4 through 10, but I want to start with verses 9 and 10 because this is kind of kind of where Peter talks about this is what's true about you. This is what God says is true about you as a part of God's family. And then we'll back up and look at the foundation, the reason that we have to have that assurance. So go ahead and skip down with me if you would to verse 9. As Peter is writing, but you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's a whole lot there, but I I want you to see just very quickly this morning four things. Four things that God says is true about you, uh, and this is connected to our relationship with Jesus Christ. The first one is this, I am accepted. I am accepted. As part of God's family, I am accepted. He uses the word, you are a chosen race, that God chose you. He he has accepted you. And that's huge because many of us can operate almost our entire life out of, out of doing things to gain somebody's acceptance because we, we didn't feel accepted. It sometimes reorders all the things that we do in our life. And so we begin by understanding that in Jesus Christ, I am accepted. I am chosen. Paul wrote to the Romans this way, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you 
for the glory of God. Think about that. Well, that's a picture, isn't it? Christ has welcomed you. The one who knows you best. The one who knows your best and knows your worst. Uh, the, the one who's seen you on your, your, your best days and your worst days. The one who knows not only your actions, but knows the motivations of your heart. He says, I welcome you. I welcome you. And if you feel welcomed, you're able to welcome other people. Because how you see yourself impacts the relationships of your life. Paul, the psalmist, would put it this way. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Here's what I know. In three services this morning, there's going to be a lot of folks who have experienced an awful lot of rejection. There are going to be folks, and maybe you're here right now, and they say, that's me. That's me. And maybe, maybe you felt that forsaking. Maybe it was from a father or a mother. Maybe one you never even knew. Maybe it was from a, a, a friend or a, a coworker or a supervisor or some significant figure in your life. Maybe as a parent, it's even been a child that you feel forsaken by a child. Maybe for some of you, it was a spouse who said, I no longer accept you. And in those moments, that can disorient us. And in those moments, I have to come back and rely on the fact that God says, I accept you. I chose you. I have welcomed you in Jesus Christ. Think about it. Jesus Christ was rejected so that we might be accepted. <laughs> He came and was, was rejected by men. He, he came and was crucified on the cross. He came and bore the weight of my sin. And even in that moment when the full weight of sin came upon him, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did all of that so that you and I could be accepted in Jesus Christ. I am accepted. Now, I know some of you stayed up late for the prom, but that's good news, man. Man, that's good news, isn't it? I am accepted. But not only am I accepted, but Peter reminds me as a part of God's family. I'm needed. I'm needed. He uses the expression that you are a royal priesthood, that you're a royal priesthood, that, that a priest is not just somebody that wears their collar backwards, right? I, you, are a, you are a priest. You are, as a part of God's family, you're part of this royal priesthood. And that, that has several implications for my life. As a believer, I have direct access to God. Think about that. A priest went before God on behalf of the people. I have direct access to God. You don't have to go to a certain place. You don't have to go to a priest because the great high priest, Jesus Christ, has already made access 100% available to you. Anytime, any place, anywhere, you have direct access to God because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. I have direct access to God as a believer. But also, I represent God before people. That's what priests did. They represented people before God, but they also represented God before people. And so he talks about 
in verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That, that, that I, I am a representative of God. It is, it is part of God's plan A, and he has no other plan but to use ordinary people like you and I to be those, those carriers of the good news, carriers of the life-changing message of the gospel into the, the networks and relationships of our life, that you and I represent God before people. It has been rightly said, and I believe it to be true, for many, 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 many folks, you may be the only Bible they ever read. That before, before they'll ever pick up this, they'll watch you. They'll talk to you. They'll listen to you. Their understanding of God It's going to be shaped greatly by what they see, hear, and experience through you. That's powerful. You're needed. You're God's plan A, and he has no other, to take the gospel across the street and around the world. But not only do I represent God before people, but as a a priest, I am gifted for ministry. I am gifted for ministry to serve others. That you have a role to play within this body of Christ. That you are are needed. That God has, has gifted you and he wants to use you in touching lives. Peter will talk about this a little later in this same letter. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The, the, you and I have the, this, this credible opportunity. We've all been gifted, and we're all gifted in different ways, and maybe you wish I had this gift or that gift, but God knew what he was doing when he made you you, and he gifted you in certain ways. But it wasn't just for your enjoyment. It just wasn't just to serve you. But it was to serve God by serving other people. Paul talks about it this way. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. That that God has designed you to be needed. To use whatever he's entrusted to you. Your spiritual gifts, your heart passions, your aptitudes, your abilities, your unique personality, your life experiences along the way, to use all of those things to serve other people for the common good. Around here we talk about next steps, and we have an area in the back there that at the close of our service, there'll be some folks available, and we always want to be available to come alongside one another to help you to take your next step. Can I just challenge some of you today? For some of you today, your next step is to step up and serve. And that can look so, so wide in its variety. So many different expressions of that. But maybe for some of you today, just operating out of an understanding of who you are in Jesus Christ, it's time maybe for you to say, you know, I don't even know exactly what that's going to look like, but I'm needed. God wants to use me for the benefit of others, for the blessing of others, for the common good. And so at the close of our service, maybe you just need to go back and have a conversation and say, help me to begin Maybe to begin to discover, maybe to develop, or just to deploy the giftedness that God has given to me in service to him and serving other people. As a part of God's family, I'm accepted. 
apart from my performance. I am needed because God has entrusted certain things to me and wants to do certain things through me. But I am also valued. I am valued. He just kind of piles up these words in these two verses. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. That that he has placed this incredibly high value on you and on me. And you say, well, what what is it that determines value? Well, there's at least a couple things. The first thing is what somebody's willing to pay for something, right? Like it or not, what is something worth? It's worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. Now, let me just go ahead and admit to you just my lack of culture. Uh, but, you know, sometimes when, you know, you, you see these, like, paintings and stuff, and, and somebody says, it's worth so and so many millions of dollars. And I look at it and say, not to me. <laughs> right? I'm sorry. I know it's, I can't, I, I have trouble with stick figures. I know I could never do it, but it's not worth millions of dollars to me I wouldn't pay that somebody will but I'm not going to do it I'd rather go out to eat (laughs) you know I mean I'm just a simple guy right I'm sorry what is somebody willing to pay for something that helps determine its value There's a second thing that helps to determine value, and that is who's owned it in the past, right? Isn't it amazing when when, when something kind of is, and oh, this this used to belong to to so-and-so. And maybe for a, another generation, it, it would have been Elvis, right? You know, well, if Elvis had it, well, I, you know, got to have that. Or, or maybe uh, Michael Jackson or who, whoever it might be. Or, or maybe it's like these, these are like shoes, but these are the shoes that Michael Jordan wore or Kobe or LeBron. Right? And all of a sudden, Steph Curry. Now, all of a sudden, these become much more valuable, right? Put a signature on the side of them, and folks will pay all sorts of money, not because the shoe is any better than the one you could get down the street, but because of who owned it before. You say, what in the world does that have to do with anything? (laughs) Well, think about it for a moment. What the Bible says is that God so valued you that he paid an incredible, incredible price. In the letter to the Corinthians, Paul said, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You belong to God by creation. He saw you and thought you were so valuable that he sent his son Jesus Christ to live the life you and I should have lived, to die the death we deserve to die. was buried and resurrected so that he could bring us to himself. He says you are valued. So part of God's family, I'm accepted, I'm needed, I'm valued. One more truth Peter hammers home, and that is I am forgiven. I am forgiven. 
Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You you have been entrusted with mercy and grace that God has forgiven you. Regardless of your past, regardless of how many times you've messed up, no matter how embarrassed you would be for anybody else to know that about you, God who knows all of that about you says, I want to cleanse that. I want to forgive that. I want to remove that. I no longer want that to dictate and dominate your life. You can be forgiven. It is the message that propelled Peter. It's the message that propelled Paul to take this gospel, even at the, at the risk of their own life, because they knew the power of forgiveness. They knew the power of having received mercy. Paul put it this way, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's the message. That's the power of the gospel. That's the offer that is ours in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, the truest thing about me is what God says about me. And what God says about me is that I'm accepted, (laughs) that I'm needed, that I'm valued, that I am forgiven. Now let's back up. If that's the top, let's look at the foundation. Because all of those truths are truths for those who are members of God's family. Uniquely true for those who are members of God's family. Back up with me to verse 4. We'll read verses 4 to 8. As you come to him, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. There are three groups, if you will, that Peter talks about in this foundational passage. And the first is the central figure, and that is Jesus Christ. But he does that in the contrast of an old and a new covenant. The old covenant had a physical temple. This physical temple, this, this building, literally physical rock stone that was built, this, this physical temple that was kind of the hub, the center of, of worship of God. 
But under the new covenant, he says he's not building a physical temple. God is building a spiritual house. Did you notice the language there? You are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That he is taking people and they are becoming these living stones. That that God is not not just in a physical space, but God is, is in us. That God is with us. That God is for us. And that God is at work in our lives. And that is this new hope this new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. And it centers around the figure of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone. The cornerstone, not not just as a symbolic thing that it might sometimes be uh, thought of in architecture today, but but that upon which the the, the building hinged, that upon which which everything depended, that Jesus Christ is this cornerstone, and he's drawing from the imagery in Isaiah 28, and Paul takes that up in Ephesians 2 as well. But I want you to notice there in, in those verses what Peter writes about Jesus as this cornerstone stone. He says, first of all, he's living. He's this living stone. He is the source of life. He is the giver not only of physical life as as he was there in the beginning, the world was created through him, but he is the author of spiritual life. Any hope that I have, any life that I have, physical or spiritual, all comes from and through Jesus Christ. He is the source of life as that living stone, but he is also chosen chosen by God, even if he was rejected by men. Peter says he, he was rejected, and yet you, you chose him. God chose him. He is chosen and precious, chosen by God, chosen to, to be this, this source, this avenue of our rescue, of our salvation, of our restoration. He was God's chosen instrument to bring about life to us, and because of that, he's precious honored or prized. Jesus wasn't always honored or prized by men. It isn't still today. And yet, in the eyes of God the Father, he he is exalted. He is honored because of what he has done and what he has made possible. Jesus Christ is the central figure, the central one to help us understand who we are. But then he talks about two responses to that central figure. The one response is the response of the acceptors. The acceptors, those who also are being made into those living stones. And so he, he talks about the honor is for those who believe uh, that, that we have that, that, that offering, that we are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Two quick truths about the acceptors, those who are being transformed into living stones. We experience honor, not shame. Now, that doesn't mean always in the short term. The people that Peter was writing to may, may be reading that and they say it feels like shame sometimes. It feels like we're being attacked. It feels like we're being put down. It feels like we're being kind of uh, ostracized. And maybe in our culture, maybe in a changing world around us, sometimes as a follower of Christ, you may feel that. You may begin to feel like, wait a minute, we're, we're kind of being pushed to the periphery or we're being looked down upon if you're a, a follower of Jesus Christ and even at times it feels like some things are being legislated in such a way that we're being ostracized. But he said, ultimately, we'll experience an honor, the same honor 
the honor that came through Jesus Christ. We experience honor, not shame. And as those living stones living in a sometimes chaotic and sometimes even ungodly world, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. As those, the holy priesthood, that spiritual house, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And what in the world is a spiritual sacrifice, right? Well, the New Testament gives us a couple of clues. Let me just throw out a couple as a starting point. Hebrews 13 talks about a spiritual sacrifice of praise in our actions. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You know, we we gather together and, and... We have this music, not for entertainment, not really for critique. It's to praise Him and just to honor. Not the only way to do it, but it is to take these lips, this gift of communication, and offer to God honor and praise and recognition of his greatness and wonder. We also offer sacrifices that are pleasing to him when we do good, when we share what we have. Those actions honor God. They are a sacrifice that is pleasing to him. But in writing to the Romans, Paul kind of sums it up with these words. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That I really take my life, I mean, I cannot live life apart from my body, right? I take my one and only life. And I offer it to him. And I offer it to him to be used for his purposes. God, direct my path. God, help me to to use whatever you've entrusted to me in a way that honors you, in a way that benefits other people. God, I am yours. I am your child. I am your servant. Direct my path. Use me for your glory. So that we offer day by day, moment by moment, our very lives as living sacrifices, living stones who offer living sacrifices of our entire life for the purposes of God. That's what the acceptors do. Those who recognize the cornerstone, recognize who Jesus Christ is. But Peter is equally as true to say there are also those who are rejectors. The rejectors, instead of being made into a living stone, instead of opening their life and receiving Jesus Christ, They stumble. They reject. And again, he's drawing from Old Testament imagery, Psalm 118 among them, Isaiah 8.14. And he says something about those who stumble in these verses. He says, first of all, they're offended by Jesus. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Have you noticed in our culture that you can talk about spirituality and that's kind of okay. And the fact is, in many ways, it's still okay to kind of talk about God in a generic sense, right? 
God as you understand him, or, or God bless you, God bless America. But when you start talking about Jesus, when you start lifting up Jesus as the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, then you begin to see offense. Then people begin to stumble. Then you begin to get pushback along the way. There are those who may not, are not generally offended by the sense of spirituality who will be greatly offended at the claims of Jesus Christ. Has been and it will continue to be. The rejectors are offended by Jesus and they, and they end up, because of that, being disobedient to the word. Disobedience to the word. So they stumble because they disobey the word. When you reject the authority of Jesus, then why would you obey his word? Why, why would you just live out of your own sense of identity, your own sense of, of what's right or wrong? And so I, I reject Jesus. I'm offended by Jesus. I'm offended by those claims. And so I'm naturally going to disobey. Or if I obey, I kind of pick and choose those things that I'll, I'll kind of agree with. It worked for me for this season of my life. So putting these two parts together, Peter is writing, there are some things that are true about you if, if you recognize that Jesus is the cornerstone, if you have accepted the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness that's only found through Jesus Christ, and if you have, then you are accepted. You're needed, you're valued, and you're forgiven. See, the truest thing about me is what God says about me. The truest thing about me, the truest thing about you, is what God says is true about you. But here's the other side of that coin. The truth about me is dependent upon what I do with the truth about Jesus. The truth about me is dependent upon what I do with the truth about Jesus. We've lost in recent months a couple of pretty huge figures in our culture. This week it was Barbara Bush. And I happened to be in Houston for a few days this week when all that was unfolding. And it was just very interesting to be in Houston as all of that was was unfolding and a lot of ladies wearing some pearls and uh, that sort of thing in uh, honor of uh, Barbara Bush. But just a little bit ago, a little closer to home here, Billy Graham went home to be with the Lord. Huge figure in many ways. One of the things that marked Graham's life was his humility and his desire to pour into others for the gospel's sake. And several years ago, the Graham organization hosted a, a group of evangelists in Amsterdam. And they brought evangelists from all over the world. And in fact, is they helped scholarship because a lot of them didn't have any resources to get there. But they thought it was that important to bring them together for instruction, for encouragement, for resourcing them. 
And they brought them there, and there were folks from all over the world, and some of them were sharing Christ in some very, very hard and very, very difficult places. And some of them had, had paid the price. They, they literally bore the marks on their body. Some of them had lost jobs and lost family and lost homes all for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in those moments, they, you know, you may be in a setting like that and you, you gather and you see, you see a Billy Graham and you see the, the, the widespread influence that he has and, and the opportunities that he's been able to enjoy and, and even the world leaders he had been able to meet and all of those things. And, and maybe in moments like that, you begin to think, God, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. And in one of those sessions, they had a, a Q&A time. And as Billy Graham was up there, someone from Africa shouted out this question, Billy, if you were not white and an American, where would you be today? And Graham paused for a moment, trying to take in all that was perhaps behind that question. And finally, he looked up and he simply said, I am who I am by the grace of God. And isn't that the only answer we can give? I am who I am. By the grace of God. Some of those external things will vary greatly. And I cannot guarantee you that coming to Christ means that all your problems will go away. I cannot guarantee you that it means less suffering. It may mean more. I cannot guarantee you that that you'll have uh, prolonged years of, of health and happiness. I can guarantee you that your life will be changed. You will be accepted. That you will be valued. That you are needed. And you are forgiven. Regardless of the circumstances you find yourselves in right now. Regardless of what tomorrow holds. There are some things that I need to hold on to if I'm going to understand the truth about me. I need to hold some things in tension, and what I have found is a lot of folks aren't comfortable with tension, but the Scripture is filled with it. We need to be able to hold in tension the reality to know how little I deserve the cause of my sin and rebellion. And at the same time, to know how much I have received in Jesus Christ. Every day I need to understand how lost I am without Jesus Christ. And yet how loved I am in Jesus Christ. You see, if I just 
focus on how little I deserve and how lost I am, I'll engage in self-loathing. If I forget those things, I'll engage in self-satisfaction. And either way, I'll get caught up in self-absorption. But God has called us to live out of our true identity as those who are known and loved by God. By His grace, He has created us. By His grace, He can set us free to be the people that He has created us to be. The truest thing about you is what God says about you. And the truth about you is dependent upon what you do with the truth about Jesus. Let's pray to him together, please. Oh, Father, (laughs) by your grace, we live, move, and have our being. By your grace, we have this moment. By your grace, we can be the people that you created us to be. And Father, I just ask right now, Lord, would you graciously, by that, the grace of your Spirit, remind us of who we are in Jesus Christ. Father, would you remind us anew and afresh of the greatness of our God, the greatness of the gift that is ours in Christ Jesus. And Father, would you call us, call us to you, Call us to new life, new hope, and a new identity. Father, thank you that the truest thing about us is what you say about us. And what you say about us can be transformed through Jesus Christ. I'm just going to ask you right now just to continue in that attitude.